Glad to have you guys with us this morning. Uh, when I was about 10, uh, I convinced my parents that I wanted them to buy me, now we, we kind of jointly saved up for this together, a model airplane. Now, I'd been into model airplanes for a while. I'd been building uh, maybe rocket ships. If any of you guys ever launched model rockets and when you were a kid, and I built these little uh, ships, and they had these kits you could buy that had helicopters and, and spaceships, and I built a shuttle. Uh, but I really wanted to take it to the next level, and I wanted an RC, a radio-controlled glider. And not just any glider, not one of those small ones that you put together and shoot across your yard, but I wanted something gigantic. It looked something like this. Now, this is actually not a picture of me or my, <laughs> that wasn't me at 10. That might be me now, but that's not me at 10. Uh, but that's kind of what that looked like. This is probably more like what I wanted to look like, be this cool. But this giant glider. And I remember sitting in my bed at night, drifting off to sleep, dreaming of flying that glider, doing tricks with it and just seeing it soar as the wind took it. Now, I flew that plane for hours in my head. But here's the problem. You had to put it together. It came in a box that looked kind of like this. That giant plane in this little box. And hundreds of pieces that had to be put together, and you had to follow the instructions. And I started the project, and I worked all summer. And I had some help from my dad. And in the few months, I had the fuselage done. And every night, I'd play in my mind how I was going to launch that at our park, how fun it was going to be to fly. But first, I had to build it. Now, last week, we looked at the book of Haggai. And if you've been with us over the last uh, 10 weeks, we've been going through the minor prophets. And if you remember, they're minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter books, mostly. Today's book is a little different. Uh, but as we saw last week in Haggai, the people had returned to Jerusalem. Well, at least some of them. About 50,000 of the people had returned to rebuild the temple and to begin to worship God again. But first, before they could build the or they could worship in the temple, they had to put it together. Now, if you remember, we're in what's called the post-exilic area. You're going to see a picture up here. This is kind of what we've been going through this summer. We started in Hosea, and we ended uh, yet last week with Haggai. And Haggai was the first book in the post-exilic period after the people, after God's people had been taken into captivity and taken out of their land, and they were exiles. And last week we saw that God had brought them back. This week we're in the book of Zechariah. And we're in the 11th of the 12 minor prophets, so we're almost done. You guys have done a great job. And the people, they hadn't listened to the warnings of the prophets. We've seen that every week. And eventually they were conquered and sent into exile. The temple had been destroyed, and they were living as exiles in a foreign land. But now under the rule of King Cyrus, while they were still under the dictatorship of the Persian Empire, they were allowed to travel back back to their homeland and build their temple, to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, to rebuild their community, to reset everything in the land. And we saw last week in Haggai that they had laid the foundation under the leadership of two guys, Zerubbabel, remember that fun name, Zerubbabel, who was the governor put in charge of getting this project going, and Joshua, the high priest, who would one day administer the sacraments in that temple when it was finished. But they had gotten sidetracked. They had built the foundation, but then 16 years had gone by and they'd gotten sidetracked. 
If you remember last week, we talked about the old timers who remember the old days. They were discouraged because things didn't look like once the, what they used to. The temple wasn't as grand, as majestic as it once was. They weren't a superpower anymore. They were no power. They had no army. They had no government. And so those folks then discouraged the younger folks. You guys, this is nothing like what it used to be. The temple they were working on wasn't as magnificent. And now today we land in the book of Zechariah. If you got your Bibles, I encourage you to open up. We're going to be flipping around a lot today in the book of Zechariah. We want to start off with chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, it's because it is. It's the same way that Haggai started out last week. And these prophets are specific about the time that they're prophesying, and they're doing that on purpose. If you remember last week, we saw the prophet Haggai spoke to the people over the course of three months. And he, beginning, he began that first message on what would be in our calendar, August 29th. They tell us that. And Zechariah begins a few months later in November. So these two guys, these two books overlap in their time period. They're two prophets speaking to the same people at the same time. And each of them is helping them to convey a similar message, but with a different style. Have you ever heard of someone being right-brained or left-brained? We've heard that before, right? It's sometimes used to explain how people process things. It's complicated, but basically to boil it down, if you're mostly analytical and practical in your thinking, then the theory says that you're left-brained. If you tend to be more creative or artistic, then you're right-brained. Now, that's a gross oversimplification of that, but it tends to be fairly accurate, and most of us fall into one of those. So think about it this way. Haggai is the left-brain guy. Pretty straightforward. You saw last week, he pretty much tells it like it is, and you can immediately get the idea of what he's talking about and the takeaway and the lessons for the people. But Zechariah, he's more right-brained. He's more dramatic. He's got an artistic flair to what he does. Now, you may tend to gravitate to one or the other, but both of them are necessary. See, we learn through instructions and directions, and we learn through music and art. See, on Sundays, we have both worship and teaching because God wants to capture our hearts and our minds. And the same was true with the people in Zechariah and Haggai's day. God wants to capture the hearts and minds of the people. So Zechariah is very different than Haggai. The book of Zechariah, as you guys read this this week, if you remember, we've been challenging you to read the books as we go through them. This one will take a little bit longer. Uh, Haggai, I think you could have read it in less than five minutes. This one's going to take you maybe 30. It's quite a bit longer. It's one of the longest minor prophets. But Haggai's filled with dreams and visions and prophecies that are really out there. Parts of Zechariah actually sound a lot like Revelation. If you're familiar with Revelation, talking about the end times and things that just don't make a lot of sense to us. And there are a number of similarities between Zechariah and Revelation. Zechariah is often considered by scholars to be maybe the most complex and most difficult to understand book. So I want to encourage you, as you read this this week, don't be discouraged if some of this doesn't make sense. But what we're going to try to do this morning is maybe a little bit different than what we did with Haggai. I want to give us, we've been talking about flying over 50,000 foot view of the prophets so you can understand. We're maybe going to go 150,000 on 
on Zechariah here. Because instead of just dialing into one thing and give you a lesson to take home, I want to give you a whole lay of the book because it's important to understand what's going on or you're going to read this like I did when I read this without studying it. I'm like, what in the world is going on? So Zechariah, he's a complicated guy. He's also the most quoted of all the minor prophets in the New Testament. There are over 40 references to Zechariah in the New Testament. And much of the prophecies especially towards the end of the book, are about the coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, and the second coming of Jesus. Now you got to keep in mind that at this time, we're 500 years before Jesus came in a manger in Bethlehem. So when Zechariah speaks of this coming Messiah, he's speaking in future tense for them, but past tense for us. But yet, Zechariah, at the same time he's talking about this coming king, he often talks about him as coming and then coming again. And that's what we have to look forward to. So in Zechariah, we're going to see visions, and some of this stuff, like I said, is just way out there. But both the prophets have the same message. Be encouraged. See, unlike many of the other prophets that we've looked at that had these messages of doom and gloom, Zechariah, like Haggai, is telling the people, okay, I've brought you back into the land. I want you to be encouraged. Because the people had lost hope. They were trying to rebuild this temple. They were trying to get their lives back together. And things weren't going terrible, but they weren't going how they thought they were supposed to go. They were back in their homeland, but they were surrounded by enemies. They were still under Persian rule and dictatorship, so they didn't have their own government or political system or army. They had no way to protect themselves, and they were losing hope. They had no real power of their own. And as you read Zechariah this week, I want you to keep this in mind. They had been defeated. They were just beginning to rebuild, and so they were discouraged. You're going to see all throughout Zechariah, God uses the phrase, God of angel armies. Or he says, the Lord Almighty, over and over again. And he's doing that because he wants to remind the people, you might not have the power, but the Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies, is with you. See, the people are discouraged, not because everything's falling apart, but because it doesn't look like how they thought it was going to look. This rebuilding is taking so long. Zerubbabel in charge of this is getting weary. Joshua is getting frustrated. Now, because Zechariah, like I said, is so much longer than the two-page book we looked at last week, we're going to just quickly go over this. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to flip through, and I want to give you just a quick overview of what's going on in Zechariah so you can make some sense of this. And then we're going to circle back and camp out on one particular of these dreams. The book gives us a look at its theme from the very start. And as with many of the minor prophets, the name of the prophet helps us to understand what's going on, what's the theme. And Zechariah's name means God remembers. God remembers. And it starts off with a little history lesson for the people. The second verse says this, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Actually, as I looked this up this week, the translation, the literal translation of this is the Lord was angry with anger with your ancestors. In other words, he's really, really ticked off. He's saying, remember this? I was really mad about the things that you guys have done. If you remember in our study, some horrible things that these people have been doing. 
So it comes as no surprise that God says, I was really angry. And he goes on, he says, therefore, but tell the people this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah, amen. That's his message. That's the theme of this whole book. Return to me, and I will return to you. And he goes on and he says, And they repented and said, The Lord God Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So the people realize they had been punished. They had been disciplined because of the mess that they had made of their lives, because they had offended God in his ways. They had taken advantage of each other and the people around them in horrible, horrible ways. And so this is where we are as we start this book. God's people have returned to the Lord. And if you remember, we started this journey with a prophet named Hosea. And Hosea was a living picture of what God was going to do for us, for the people. Time and time again, the people, they had cheated on God, but now they're back. They had returned to him, but things weren't going great. The temple was taking forever. And they're trying to build, rebuild a nation while living under oppression, and they're discouraged. And Zechariah is here with this message for us, for them, of encouragement. Now, the first part of Zechariah is made up of a series of dreams. And these dreams are found in chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the middle of chapter 6. Let me ask this. Have you ever had a weird dream? Yeah. I don't mean, I don't mean like you, were a, you had superpowers and you saved the world, or like you were rich and famous, you had a fancy car. I'm not talking about the if you build it, they will come type dream, like field of dreams, but more like a Doctor Strange type of dream, you know? Just crazy, weird, doesn't make any sense. No semblance of reality. This is kind of what, what Zachariah's dreams are like. Like, you know, when you have a lot of spicy food mixed with some kind of hallucinogen, that's what it feels like when you read these. This is the stuff that we find in Zechariah. And Zechariah has eight dreams, all in one night. All in one night. We actually know the date. Remember, these both prophets, they're letting us know the dates of this. It's February 15th, 519 B.C. Anyone born on February 15th? Maybe they were having like a Valentine's Day presentation or celebration before and things got out of hand. I don't know, but February 15th, 519 B.C., Zechariah has eight crazy dreams. It's a combination of dreams and visits from the angel of the Lord who, as you're reading through this, you're going to see maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is Jesus. And all of these dreams are meant to encourage the people. He says, share these with the people, but they're weird. And so let's look at them really quick, just really quick to give you some lay of the land as you're reading them. The first one, we've got a forest with horsemen riders who go throughout the earth. And Zechariah has no idea what this means. I mean, he asks several times. The angel asks him, so do you get it? And he goes, no, I don't understand what's going on. And the angel tells him, encourage the people. God sees what's going on. He's spread out throughout the world, and he's going to take care of it. Then there's a dream about four horns, and God crumbles the horns. And in the dream, it means that God is reminding the people that he's still in control, that he's going to take care of their enemies. In chapter 2, we see a young boy with a tape measure, measuring to see how long the city of Jerusalem is. But God says, hey, boy, your tape measure's not long enough. This place is going to be huge. 
And it's not going to have walls that you can measure because so many people are going to be in it. And God says, there's no need to measure the city. Encourage the people. What you're doing here might not seem significant, but it's going to be giant. I've got big plans. I have plans that are huge. This place is one day not just going to be for you and your people. It's going to be for all people. In the second part of this dream, we see the first prophecy really about the coming of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Chapter 3, we see a vision of the high priest Joshua and he's got filthy robes. His priestly garments are just covered with, it actually is excrement, just garbage, junk. And he represents the people. And Satan is there in this dream. And he's accusing Joshua before God saying, look at how dirty he is. This guy's terrible. How can you love him? And God rebukes Satan and says, I know. I know he's messed up. But I'm going to make him clean. And Joshua gets a new robe and a new turban. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. He says this to Joshua after he makes him clean. He says, If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. It's a reminder of the very message of Zechariah. Return to me, and I will return to you. I know that the people have messed up. I remember But remember this, I am making things new. You might be filthy, but I'm making you clean. There's so much more to this story than you know and what you can see right now. And the angel in this dream, he tells Zechariah that Joshua, the high priest, is a sign of someone who is to come. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you are the men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. He says, one day, you guys... You guys are a symbol of what's to come, of this one servant. Jesus is often referred to as a servant. He calls him the branch. He says, this person's going to come, and he's going to wipe away the sins of the world in one day, and there will be peace. That's a symbolism of sitting under these trees together. Chapter 4 has a dream about a lamp connected with some hoses to trees. I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. Chapter 5, we see a flying scroll, the scroll that's got wings. It's 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, and it's flying throughout the earth. And Zechariah says, what's up with this flying scroll? And the angel says, there's still a lot of wickedness and sin in the world, but the scroll is my word, and it's flying throughout the world, and it will judge the people. He says, don't be discouraged. My word is still flying around the world. And then there's a dream about a basket with a lead lid. 
And an angel takes the lid of the basket off, and there's a woman inside. And this woman's name is Wickedness. Sorry, ladies, that it was a woman named Wickedness, but that's what it says. And the basket is taken by some other women who also have wings, and they're flying this woman in a basket around. And Zechariah says, what is going on here? And the angel says, you have this basket full of stuff that you brought, all this junk, all this sin with you, and I want you to go and send it back to Babylon. In chapter 6, we see a sort of mirror dream of the first dream where there's four chariots and they're riding throughout the earth. And then the final dream is again about Joshua, the high priest. And again, we see references to Jesus, who Zechariah again in this vision calls the branch. The branch, they said, will not just be the high priest, but will be the high priest and the king. And we're running out of time to get through all these. But then we get to chapter 7, and things change. The dreams are done, this one crazy night of dreams, and two years have passed. Two years have passed, and God comes to Zechariah again, and the people are asking, they say, do we need to continue to have these fasts that we've established? Uh, They've established these fasts to remember these terrible days. Not things that God had asked them to do, just to commemorate these, and and they were going through these fasts, but now that things were going well, it's like, do we need to continue to do these fasts? And God reminds the people the same lesson that we've heard in every minor prophet. He asked me, he says, when you were doing these fasts, were they really about me? He's asking a rhetorical question, of course. If you remember, so many of the minor prophets are saying, God doesn't care so much about us doing the right things as being the right people. And he says in chapter 7, verse 9, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. He says, I don't care about those fasts so much. He said, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. It's great that you're doing these fasts, but I didn't ask you to do that. And when you were doing them, I don't think you were even doing them for the right reasons. What I really care about is this, that you would do justice, that you would show mercy and compassion. Now, the rest of Zechariah shifts gears and it spends most of the book coming about the, you're talking about the coming of Jesus, the coming king. And there's something amazing that happens as you're reading through this. You're going to see him talked about, Jesus talked about as both the high priest and the leader, the ruler, symbolizing that Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're the symbols of the power in that day, but coming is something even better. They might have been strong leaders, but there's a new leader that's going to come. And he's going to take things to the next level. And again, this is meant to encourage the people. He says, you've got great leadership right now, but there's a greater leader, a high priest and a king who's coming. And there's all these scriptures about the coming Messiah. I just want to point out a couple of them because they're so cool and they're so specific. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Matthew chapter 2. As we see the triumphal entry later on. That Jesus will come into Zion, into Jerusalem, on a donkey. 
In chapter 11, we see a passage about the branch being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And this amazing imagery that lines up so specifically to Jesus, to Judas, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and what happens with that silver. It's all prophesied here in Zechariah. But let's circle back to chapter 4. It's the middle dream, and it's such a clear picture of the theme of Zechariah. Let's read this. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps and there are two olive trees by it one on the right and one or one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left i've got a picture here zachariah drew this for us no this is just an artist's idea of what this looks like you've got this this candle with with seven wicks on it we call this menorah right and we know this is the symbol of jerusalem in this this lamp is used to symbolize the light of the people, the nation, the church. It's got this bowl and these connector things that are connected to these two olive trees. And Zechariah's like, what does this mean? I said, in Hebrew culture, the lamp, it represents God's spirit, the church, the activity. And next to the lamp stand, he sees two olive trees, one on each side, providing a continuous supply of oil to keep these lamps burning. See, up until now, the priest Joshua, his role would be to keep those lamps burning. Every day to light them, to keep them burning. But something's going on here. The, these lights, they never go out. They're being provided continuous oil. But let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like you're running on empty? Yeah. Like you just can't keep up with it every day. I don't mean just tired. Most of us, we live tired, right? That's just the way we live right now. We've got deadlines and projects and programs. I mean, do you feel drained? Like you feel like you're spinning 100 miles an hour, but you're not going anywhere. Maybe you're working two jobs because you want to get out of debt, but you can't seem to get ahead of the bills. You want your marriage to get better, but at the end of the day, you just shut off the world, turn on the TV, and veg out. Some of you are here this morning just because you wanted to put your kids in the clubhouse so you could get an hour by yourself. <laughs> the text goes on. It says, I asked the Lord who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? What is this picture? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, and this is probably the most famous passage in all of Zechariah. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Serubable, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Now, if you remember from last week, Zerubbabel was the governor, the leader who was commissioned to get the temple built, and years had gone by. There was opposition they had no idea. He had no idea how he could complete this task. He was running on empty. He was drained. They had no army to protect them. The people were discouraged, and God sends this message to Zerubbabel. He says, it's not by might. See, might in the Hebrew culture was usually a symbol of military or political strength. 
He's saying, you don't have the power to do this. Zerubbabel, the answer is not in the power of your armies or your weapons or the horses or your chariots, because guess what? You don't really have any. That's not how you're going to accomplish this task. He says, it's not by power. Power reflects our human manpower. God's telling Zerubbabel, getting people motivated, getting them to do the task isn't going to make this job get done. Instead, God promises to achieve what needs to be accomplished by my spirit. Only God's spirit could accomplish the task that was in front of God's people. And maybe you can relate to that feeling of feeling empty, of feeling drained. But just as God provides a continuous supply of oil for the lamps through the olive trees, he wants to completely fill us with his spirit. We don't have to manufacture that. It's an ongoing flow. We don't have to rely on our own strength. God's spirit empowers us to live the life that he's called us to. So remember he said, return to me and I will return to you. Stay connected to me, to the, the branch, and I will supply you all that you need. It goes on in verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Remember last week, people were saying, this is just, this is no big deal. This temple is like nothing compared to what it used to be. Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel, then I asked the angel, who are these two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left of the lampstand? And again, I ask him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? And of course, Zechariah says, no, I don't. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The angel tells Zerubbabel that he and Joshua will be one to finish, to build the temple, not by his might and not by the will of the people, but through God's spirit. Reminds me of Philippians chapter one. As Paul says, being confident of this, that he began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as God assured Zerubbabel that he would be the one to finish the job, that he would use him to finish the job, he wants to remind us that he's the one who empowers and enables us to overcome the things that God calls us to do. See, we can trust that God's Spirit is at work in and through us, accomplishing what seems impossible in our own strength. When we align ourselves to his plans and his purposes, we become part of something much bigger than ourselves, and God's glory, like that lamp, will shine on through our lives. When we're able to shine our light, not because we have all the answers, and not because we're better than those around us, not because we went to church or we did good deeds, but because He is living, He is flowing through us, shining out of us. So what are you facing today that seems overwhelming? Is it a relationship that's beyond repair or that seems beyond repair? Maybe words were said that shouldn't have been said or maybe words weren't said that needed to be said. Maybe it was this morning on the way to church. 
Maybe it was 20 years ago. But it just seems like it can't be made right. Not by my power, he says. Maybe it's a problem you've gotten yourself into. Or maybe it's something that's completely out of your hands and you just feel empty. You're just sitting here this morning and you're just, you're done. There's no more oil filling your lamps. Last week I asked you to consider the question, what are you building? And the point of Haggai's message was that we need to get our priorities right. The people were working on the right things now, but they were discouraged because they were running on empty. And Zechariah comes with a message. He says, it's not by your power. You're not going to do this. I'm going to do this through you. See, let me be clear. The lesson that we learned from Zechariah's visions, all of them, aren't that God will build all your temples. It's that he can build his temple through you. He can build his temple through you. Too many of us are sidetracked by Satan's accusations, reminding us of our failures, showing us how dirty we are. But I believe that there are some amazing things that God wants to do through you. Marriages that are going to be lights of the world and demonstrate selfless love and faithfulness that are in such short supply today. There are children who are going to be cared for and given hope through the work that we've heard about this morning even in the Dominican Republic. There are people in need right here in our community who are going to have their physical needs met light shining, not because of you and not because of me, but his power in us. Students who are going to hear the message of God who loves them, even when the world says, nobody cares about you. Those are the temples that God wants to build through you. And I believe God wants to do something in and through Seymour Christian. Not by your power, not by my power, but by his spirit. Now, I never completed that model airplane. It sat there year after year. And as it sat there, something began to happen. I started to listen to that voice that said, you're never going to finish it. And I moved on to other things. And as time go by, I made more excuses. And I eventually wanted, I moved on to wanting to fly planes that actually had engines and that would go faster and wouldn't rely that, on the hope that I would catch the wind right. There are lots of reasons why, but in the end, that plane got thrown out more than 20 years later, half finished, when my sister called and said, hey, we found this plane in the basement. I think you were working on it, and you were like 10. What are you going to do with this? And I'm a little bummed that I never got to see it fly. But the truth is, it was probably way more impressive in my mind. And it wasn't a very practical hobby for the suburbs of Detroit. But I was thinking about this plane this week. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord Almighty. Do you know what the word spirit is in Hebrew? It's the word ruah. An actual translation of it is wind. See, there are things that God wants to do in and through you, not by your might, not by your power, but by his spirit, his ruah, his wind, allowing you to soar to places you never thought you'd be able to go. Not because you want to go there, but because God has tasked something for you to do. See, all we need is to extend our arms to him. 
Let him lift us up like that glider and direct us to where he wants us to go. And we're told in his word, then we will soar. Isaiah chapter 40, 31 says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's pray together. God, what a crazy book as we read this this week. So much in this book of Zechariah. And Lord, we thank you for encouraging the people to continue what you would task them to do, to know that you've got a plan much bigger than we can see. And Lord, I ask for each and every one of us that as we consider what we're putting our hands to, Lord, if we feel drained, I know that so many of us do, feel like no matter how hard we're trying, nothing in our life is changing. God, help us to see that you are working behind the scenes in ways that we could never understand. That, Lord, you don't ask us to have the strength to endure the world or to finish these tasks or do great things for you. Say, just be connected to the tree. Let me fuel you by my spirit to light the world on fire. God, may people see us See us being driven, being fueled by your spirit in our marriages. God, I pray for the marriages that are in this room that are feeling like they're just drained, like those relationships, Lord, they're not going anywhere. They're not where they need to be. Lord, help us to follow the advice of Haggai last week and get to work, but Lord, to recognize that it's not something we're going to do, but allow you to work in and through us. Lord, for the people that we want to reach in your name, help us to recognize that it's not our work, it's your work. Lord, no matter what we're facing, help us to know that we're not alone, that we don't have to do it on our own, that we don't have to run on empty. God, we thank you for the reminder to the people and the reminder to us that there is a coming king, a coming day, Lord, when everything will be made the way it's supposed to be. But in the meantime, help us to rely on your strength, not try to go it alone, not by our strength or our might, but by your spirit, Lord. You can allow us to soar. Help us to complete the task you've set before us, Lord, and fly on your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.